Welcome to Middle School Walk and Talk, a podcast series offering heart, hope, and health to members of our middle school communities. Take a walk with co-hosts Phyllis Fagel and Joe Mazza as they discuss self-care, student well-being, school culture, and more. Middle School Walk and Talk is a production of the Association for Middle Level Education and is designed to support the concepts outlined in our foundational text, The Successful Middle School, This We Believe. Learn more at amle.org. Today's episode, There Are Always Going to Be Haters, with special guest, Dr. Samir Hinduja. Hey, Phyllis, how you doing? I'm good, Joe. How are you? I'm so excited for our guest today. Incredibly excited today. Um, I've had the, the privilege and the pleasure to meet him uh, just like two weeks ago. He was at our school. And of course, we're talking about Dr. Samir Hinduja. He is here with us in the green room eating the blue M&Ms right now. Uh, Dr. Hinduja is a professor of the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Florida Atlantic University. He's co-director of the Cyberbullying Research Center down in Florida, faculty associate at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard University. He is recognized internationally for his groundbreaking work on the subjects of cyberbullying, sexting, social media, gaming abuse, concerns that have paralleled the exponential growth in online communication by young people. He's written seven books, and um, I won't read the rest of his lengthy, distinguished bio because I now know him personally. Thanks to you, Phyllis, for introducing us, but he was just at Seven Bridges Middle School, um, what, two weeks ago now, and he spoke with um, students. Uh, He also spoke with parents, and uh, we are still having fantastic conversations here in our school community that was spurned by uh, his visit. So um, welcome, Samir. Joe, good seeing you, Phyllis as well. Happy to be here. Hopefully we can serve the rest of the community. One of the things I appreciate the most about Samir, and I think I met you back probably in 2015 or so when I was working at a middle school in Bethesda and the PA had brought you in to speak. And something that really struck me was how well you related to the students. And of course, Years later, I ended up bringing you to Sheridan School, where I work right now, and I've seen you at so many conferences. I'm constantly looking at your website for the latest, greatest research on middle schoolers and everything from sextortion to helping them develop empathy. And I know you are at schools all of the time, constantly sharing your research, sharing your ideas. And I would love to hear a little bit about what some of those really cutting edge hard topics that you're tackling right now with schools are? Sure. So obviously the landscape continues to shift and it feels like many educators and of course parents are are overwhelmed and perhaps rightly so because it's it's hard to stay abreast of these new developments. Um, But fundamentally, I think it just continues to come down to how are we coming alongside our youth and their lives? And we know that their lives are being lived out loud online in different ways. And the technology, of course, has shifted from you know your general social media sites to um, you know more and more ga- gaming environments, and now we're thinking more about how generative AI can be used to create fake accounts or or bots or hateful sentiments that are then elevated and and propagated wildly um, automatically. And it's like, dear heavens, how are we supposed to reel this in? How are we supposed to you know control all of this? But again, like I mentioned just a couple of seconds ago, just keep coming alongside our youth, keep trying to support them, remembering that adolescence is so challenging 
in so many ways. And I think that we will be able to make progress with these offline behaviors, as well as when we see online issues. Samir, one of the things that really struck me that you shared with me had to do with the difference between affective empathy and cognitive empathy. And I think that it's really important for all of the educators listening to understand why it's so important to teach cognitive empathy. I'd love to empower them to do that and also to use that as a way to address the fact that we just can't keep up with all of these changes and instead target the skills and the mindset at its core, at the root. I love that. And so it makes me think about how our goal should be, what are we doing to to raise or to shepherd a decent human being, a kind human being, and as you mentioned, an empathetic human being. And hopefully as youth serving professionals focus in on, on those soft skills, whether it's empathy or, or resilience or moral development, you know, we've talked about a number of these you and I in conversations in the past, then I think we'll we'll make progress. But specific to empathy, one might argue that are we seeing some sort of, you know, deterioration across the societal fabric when it comes to our levels of empathy, and definitely not just youth, but adults as well. And so as a consequence, should we be more intentional about building it in our youth? And how is that being done? Is it going to happen naturally? Maybe parents might say yes, but I think all of us have lived long enough to maybe counter that by saying, I'm not really sure if it's going to happen intentionally, because it seems like many of our youth are growing up in these protective bubbles. They're always being distracted and maybe even numbed by their their technology, which reinforces certain viewpoints that they might already have instead of broadening their viewpoints and expanding their horizons to be more inclusive, to be more respectful with people who don't necessarily look like them or agree with them. And so, yeah, again, I'm, I'm all about just, you know, meaningful focus on this topical area. And when you think about empathy, we're first, as you mentioned, talking about affective empathy, where it's all about, you know, feeling or experiencing the emotions of others. And then there's cognitive empathy, which is also termed perspective taking, but we're really just talking about, okay, I might not feel how you feel, but I understand it. I can cognitively appreciate what you're going through. And you'll agree with me when I say that, without a doubt, our levels of empathy affect basically all, I would say, of our interpersonal interactions, not just when you're young, but even as you continue to get older. Plus, the research has shown that when you are lacking empathy or when you have lower than typical levels of, of empathy, it's linked to a number of problem behaviors. And so you and I would be talking about, let's say, delinquency or you know, minor and moderate forms of violence, um, et cetera. So we clearly don't want that as, as educators. So to summarize my research, you know, we wanted to see how empathy was related to you know, peer harassment online in the form of cyberbullying. And we found that you know, higher cognitive empathy made such a huge difference and also higher total empathy. Those who were high in cognitive empathy and those who were higher in total empathy were much, much less likely to target others online. Samir, one of the things that you shared with parents, but also with students when you're here speaking with them is more of an approach, you know, using resilience. You talk a little bit about some of the advice that you gave students um, that maybe, you know, some of the same language we can parallel when we're here at the schools talking to them as their teacher, or as their administrator. Sure. So when you're thinking about empathy, we tend to focus on the aggressor. And without a doubt, um, all of us are capable of being cruel, mean, a bit of a jerk to other people. Sometimes it's minor, sometimes it's it's very severe. 
and historically approaches to dealing with peer conflict at schools have focused on that, again, potential aggressor. But resilience asks us to look a little bit more at the target or the potential target. Not to say that we want to blame the target in any capacity because no one ever deserves to be to be victimized or you know, to face hate speech or harassment of any kind. But can those targets do something? You know, can they grow in certain skill sets, which then helps to buffer against um, hate, harassment, meanness, cruelty, rumors, gossip, all of these, you know, mean behaviors which might take a toll when it comes to a person's identity if they base their identity on peer perception. And so when talking to youth, I just think it's so important to try to walk with them in a very gracious, non-judgmental manner. Where are they getting their identity from? If it's coming from what they believe everyone is saying about them and what they're all thinking about them, again, peers, classmates, then I feel like that's a, a no-win situation because you could be extremely popular one day, and then what happens? All of a sudden, you could be at the, the bottom of the, the ladder when it comes to um, your, your value and your worth in the social community. So instead, in a perfect world, we would love our youth to be driving their identity from, number one, their academic exploits and their success there. We'd want them to develop um, a focus on their future because they can, in part, control their future. They can't control what other people are thinking about them. We also hope that youth are driving identity based on the type of person that they're becoming. You often hear that phrase, are you working towards becoming the best version of yourself? Because that's what we care about. And getting them to think about what that looks like and, and how they're leveling up in that direction day by day and week by week will help them then to focus on that as the source for their value, for their self-worth, instead of, again, peer perceptions. And so that's how you grow in resilience. That's how you're able to say, you know what? There's always going to be haters. There's always going to be people who want to tear me down. Maybe they're jealous. Maybe they're envious. Maybe they're insecure. Maybe they're dealing with major issues in their life. And this is the only way that they know how to feel better about themselves, you know, by, by ripping me apart. But I cannot internalize that. I have to do whatever I can to stiff arm it and focus on solid, stable anchors as sources for my identity and worth. And Samir, some of the tips I know you give students, I know you gave the students at my school that I think are really important to emphasize because it's not necessarily intuitive for kids is doing simple things like just blocking them or using humor to deflect or, or just logging off or limiting how much time you're on uh, certain apps, just being mindful of how you're using it and how it's making you feel. And I think sometimes kids forget you don't actually just have to stay online and subject yourself to it. They think they need to know what everyone is saying about them, but they really don't have to. It, it's actually none of their business if you think about it. It has nothing to do with what's going on inside of them. Yeah, and it ties into self-control. It, it ties into you know not, be, not struggling so much with FOMO. And we hope that our middle schoolers are getting better and better as, as time goes on. But I'm always thinking about the fact that they feel so overwhelmed by social obligation and social pressures. It's like, can I can I unfriend or unfollow this person? What if they think that I have a beef with them? Um, I, I don't really kind of, I don't wanna be in touch with them anymore. I don't want them to have access to the things that I'm posting, but forever, for whatever reason, I just, I don't think I can actually unfollow them. But then when you help that student, you know, take a step back and realize that they have to be in control of their online experience, to demonstrate maturity, to set boundaries, to make sure that they protect themselves, then hopefully they will take that hard step of, let's say, unfollowing someone or, or having a difficult conversation. 
But unless they, they take that first step, it's always going to be hard for them. But after they take that first step, they realize that, wow, I, I, I don't have to take it like a punk. I can mute, I can block, I can unfollow, and consequently, I can have a much better and happier online experience. I love that. You know, Samir, I have a question that I don't know the answer to, and it's not something we've talked about before, so we might be riffing on it a little bit right now. But something that's really interesting to me is the contradiction that I see in terms of peer influence, bullying, harassment, pressure, when it comes to straight up meanness, you know, calling someone weird or calling somebody, you know, just excluding somebody and making them feel bad, there tends to be a pile on effect and people don't necessarily rise to that person's defense or come to that person's defense. But when it's something that targets someone's identity, when it's homophobic, when it's racist, when it's sexist, there's, you know, cancel culture kicks in and a kid can be completely ostracized for making that kind of a mistake. Do you have any thoughts on what the difference is there or why kids are reacting so differently to those two types of situations? I would say that it's because individuals with a strong platform and a voice have spoken out so bluntly and loudly about hate speech, about targeting individuals based on their identity, whether it's sexual expression or orientation or race or religion or gender. Individuals from all walks of life, politicians, celebrities, athletes have spoken out you know, so strongly related to those, those aspects. But I think you'll agree with me that we want our youth to understand that we have much more in common than we do different. And singling out someone from, or singling out someone for a physical difference, whether it's the shape of their nose or the texture of their hair or acne or body type, it hurts as much as if you were targeting someone based on their, their identity. And so what I think is useful is again, bringing it back to empathy and understanding that, well, you're sensitive about certain things that you would never want others to use against you. Let's say in a group chat or in a comment thread under your latest selfie, you would never want anyone to, and you would think that it's beyond the pale that it's incredibly cruel for them to do so. Well, similarly, unfortunately, you know, you have or your peers have targeted this individual or that individual about something that they're sensitive about. You might not be sensitive about the same thing, but please understand that they are. And so as a, as a result, we should be respectful and stay far, far away from that line, let alone get close to crossing it. It, it comes down to social skills, really. I'm thinking about a kid who is upset because somebody was poking fun at his weight and it was a kid who struggled with his weight. So he felt that the other person should really know that's a pain point for him. He should understand that that is something that is super hurtful. And so it very much felt like it was an intent to wound him, but he didn't tell that kid that it hurt him. And the other kid like legitimately thought he was being kind of funny and teasing him and it was good natured. And it really made me think about how they both needed to work on different social skills. One of them needed to be more assertive and let this kid know, hey, like that's not cool. That's making me feel really bad. And the other kid needed to understand how to walk that line between funny and mean. And I think that's the real challenge. How do we teach these kids, help them develop their empathy in a way that doesn't get them stuck. We want them to think that there's a way back, you know, to being a good kid, to being considered a kind kid and allow them to make mistakes and then find a way to make it right with the person they hurt. And I think it comes back again to identity because unfortunately our youth are also driving identity and value from being way too inclusive, you know, let's say in their group chats or in their, in their friend groups in general. And part of inclusivity is 
intentionally excluding others because otherwise it wouldn't be special. But as we walk through with youth, what it feels like to be on the outside, you know, isolated or rejected, we, we understand the weight and the gravity associated with, with that and how it oftentimes hurts so much more than direct overt forms of harassment. And so having those conversations again and making it very personal, I think goes a long way to in, in helping cultivate empathy. Samir, um, you know, one of the most challenging things that supporting middle schoolers around digital citizenship, um, cyberbullying is not having an a la carte conversation where it's all happening outside of school, but here we are trying to address it in school without context. It's like, you know, teaching vocab words and, and not connected to like the conversation that you're having or the story that you're you're having, right? Um, you know, a lot of this power is outside the walls and, and at home, whatnot. What, what can educators do or, or are there programs out there or tools out there that, you know, we can support kids in context with some of these things without saying, all right, everybody take out your Snapchat feeds. We're going to choose Johnny's and put his up on a screen and, and kind of page through his his story, so to speak. How can schools do this, you know, at middle school, even in the high school level where we're actually helping kids because we're just finding time and time and time again, parents either are not putting the time in to actually support the kid at home, get involved, figure out what they're doing at home, or the kid has no interest in going to that parent for whatever reason to get that kind of support. Well, one idea that I know um, Phyllis is a huge fan of has to do with role-playing scenarios, as long as they're relevant, because if they're lame, the kids are just going to roll their eyes and you're not going to make any headway whatsoever. Um, I know that we've written a number of role-playing scenarios covering different online platforms, different devices, different technologies, and different forms of harm. And if you're able to share them with the students in front of you, whether it's in a classroom setting or a small group setting, you're able to then get them to think about an action plan, what they would do, what they shouldn't do, what they would expect an administrator or parent to do, and what they hope an administrator or parent wouldn't do. And that allows everyone to get on the same page when it comes to these sorts of situations, understanding context, understanding digital evidence, understanding the steps that must be taken when it comes to informal or formal discipline for the betterment of that one student, as well as for the entire student body. The second thing that I would say is that we have to enlist youth themselves. We've all seen a trend on social media where more and more youth are willing to share their own stories to render themselves vulnerable, whether it's them being targeted online or them facing um, this form of hate, et cetera. And so if we can possibly get some of our students who have self-confidence and who are willing to share their story with let's say the rest of the student body or the classmate, then it be, the, sorry, the class that they're in front of, I think it becomes so much more powerful and relatable for all of those students because it isn't an adult talking until they're blue in the face about how we don't want them to do this and we do want them to do that. It's instead another student who's living the same sorts of lives, facing the same challenges of adolescence, and then hopefully conveying how to overcome because that's what other students want to hear. They want to be inspired and they want to learn how to overcome. You know, when Samir was here, he put up just about every video game the kids could have played over the last 15 years up on the screen. And, you know, to the point where he's making connections with them at the beginning, like, man, I sure hope he can get them back. Um, but they did. They came right back to you. And, and it was I was really impressed because 
we haven't had a lot of assemblies, especially post-COVID. Um, and, you know, those kids were with you every step of the way, you know, just in terms of what you were trying to share with them, the fact that you weren't, you told them flat out, hey, I met with your parents last night and I did not tell them to get you off of the devices. You know, because I think that's what kids think, that adults are involved. That means I'm going to, you know, the end of my device, you know, relationship is coming very soon. But no, that's that's the opposite, you know, of the message that you gave. Um, we're not putting it back in the bottle, but, you know, parents, we need to step up and do more parenting. I've used the the example of, you know, the car and how much scaffolding happened before we get those keys um, versus the lack of scaffolding that we get before we have these devices. You know, one could be physical well-being in a car, and this is mental um, and, and whatnot. And parents seem to like, hmm, you know, think deeper about that. But it is definitely an uphill battle. Educators are definitely fighting the uphill battle with not just, you know, the things that are happening there, but just trying to get some focus back into their classroom because whether it's on their hand or in their pocket vibrating haptics or somewhere else there's a lot of distractions going on there and a lot of it's FOMO a lot of it is just absolutely nothing that they need to pay attention to but but yeah here they go I think it's also really important to keep reminding kids and this is something that I I didn't even necessarily know myself until recently when I was research looking into an article topic but a lot of the things that kids consider to be social risks because they think they're an outlier, they think they want something from their peers that their peers don't want. And a lot of them are often reinforcing these social norms that none of them actually want to see persist. And really sharing that research with them and letting them know, actually, your peers also want this to be a kind culture. They also want to feel safe raising their hand in class, taking a risk, saying something silly, whether it's online or offline, and just reinforcing that over and over again. And even if it seems like they're not listening to us as adults, I think it is helpful for them to hear it from us as well. Yeah, and I think that students, once you ask them and uh, get a get a feel for the landscape, they're willing to talk to adults. They are. They just maybe don't know where to turn. They're willing to stand up for a peer who's being targeted. They might just not know exactly what to do. So if we can fill those gaps, um, in intentional ways with specific actionable strategies, they will surprise us with how they help us build that culture that we're looking for at our schools. That's right. And I think just piggybacking on the role play scenarios, which I, you're right, I do love those too. The kids can lead those conversations. They can be the ones to walk their classmates through those scenarios and create lists of pros and cons of making different choices. And it's another way to really reinforce to one another that they want the same thing. And again, I think that's so important that it's not as risky to do the right thing as they think it is. Yeah, let's continue to enlist students to help us with this messaging because we are exhausted and we're, we're doing all that we can and we need their help. Samir, really, really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Can you uh, share for the educators listening how they can find your work and how they can follow you? Sure. My website is hinduja.org. My last name is H-I-N-D-U-J-A, so hinduja.org. If there's anything that I can do in terms of providing resources or input, um, you know, I care deeply about all of these issues at the intersection of youth and technology, and I truly want everyone to, to be encouraged because we will continue to make progress and we'll co-labor together in it. And if you reach out to him, he will respond. I've already had 
parents tell me they've reached out to you and whatnot just from a short time ago and you've responded to them. So really appreciate that. I think everybody says that, but not everybody actually walks the walk. So appreciate you, um, Samir, for joining us today and um, look forward to continuing to learn for you uh, moving forward. Yes. Thank you, Samir. Of course. Cheers.